0: actually even make sense and what I might do to develop. In the end, I settled on a compromise between all of these. So if you find me going off into strange tangents, it will just be because there are multiple narratives running in my head at the moment. But here, so that caveat aside, here's what I'm going to do. First, I'm going to provide some, uh, uh, some outlines of the broad research project. And second, I'm going to focus my discussion on one part of the ocean, the seabed, as a way of Providing illustration of what the broad project aims to do. So, what is the broader project? As the title of my talk suggests, it is a project of unmaking. Unmaking the ocean that I argue has been made through the law that has contributed to the physical, the ecological unmaking of the ocean. So it's so I argue that the law has unmade the ocean, and now we need to unmake the law if we want to stop the further unmaking of the ocean. My primary intuitions here are twofold. Firstly, that the ocean as it is today is the product of international law. It is through international (coughs) law that the ocean has been constituted as an assemblage of extractable resources to its very great detriment. The ill health of the ocean is very widely recognised today. There is a lot of talk now at UN levels amongst uh, marine scientists in scholarship. Uh, and the fact that international law has played a role in producing this ill health is also recognized, <coughs> although it's not as widely acknowledged. And this becomes problematic simply because it undermines the very strenuous efforts that are now being made towards saving the ocean. Uh, I would suggest that what we need to some extent is a radical rethink of the very foundations of the law of the sea, which unsettle much of what we take as given today. Secondly, that feels like a frightfully big ask. Uh, this is, a, I mean, to, to issue this call to doubt everything feels hopelessly impractical. It might also have a whiff of ivory tower thinking that doesn't really engage with what the real world needs or what is possible in the real world. I acknowledge all of this. And this is why my second intuition is that a turn to history is quite helpful here. Because it, a turn to the history of the law of the sea helps us to recognize that much of what we take as given about the ocean about international law is a pretty recent and b fairly contested the ocean we have just as the law we have is not a product of the inevitable logic of the law working itself pure it is a product of political struggles and if we recognize that to be the case then suddenly it feels a lot less awe-inspiring to suggest that we need some fundamental rethinking of the law of the sea I would suggest, in fact, that the fundamental rethinking doesn't have to come from outside of the discourse, that the discourse around the law of the sea in the course of the 20th century has already provided many, many uh, concepts and possibilities for this rethinking. So in effect, the project, therefore, seeks to trace the co-production of the ocean and international law over the course of the 20th century. I take the concept of co-production from Professor Sheila Jasanoff, who along with other scholars who focus on science and technology studies, encourage us to map the simultaneous simultaneous processes through which modern societies form the epistemic and normative understandings of the world. In other words, what is out there shapes our understanding of what is it for, but also vice versa. Our sense of what things are for shapes our sense of what we see as, as out there. And I place, I try to place these changing epistemic understandings of the ocean and the changing law of the sea over the 20th century into a common frame, suggesting that seeing how each influenced the other helps us make sense of the vast changes that happened to both in this time frame. So over the course of the 20th century, the ocean went from being perceived as a legally smooth, if physically treacherous space, to becoming a minutely differentiated one. It became, it went from essentially the image that you see on the left of the slide to the images that you see on the right of the slide uh, and becoming a multiplicity of zones, of mediums, um, of functions. Uh, the ocean is now cluttered. It's extensively occupied and very largely enclosed. And I try to understand how we got here. Important, of course, were changing science, technology, and resource economics, which I'll be talking about in greater detail in a few minutes. All of these enabled new uses of the ocean, but the law's role was also constitutive. It was the law that played a significant part in promoting and normalising particular interactions with and perceptions of the ocean. Secondly, as to the law, the law also underwent a significant change in the 20th century in terms of who it addressed and what in terms of how it was made, enforced, the content of this law, particularly the balance that was achieved between state sovereignty and collective responsibilities, mm-hmm. and where and how the law came to draw balance between the natural world and the social world. These are all things uh, where the law took, a, took a significant took several significant turns in the 20th century. So I tried to write a history of these changes in international law with a focus on the ocean, the history of international law is, of course, immensely involved these days. But I would suggest that very few accounts leave land. They might reach, at most, the coasts and the rims. So you have Atlantic histories and Pacific histories that are focused, essentially, on interactions around the rims of the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean. What I try to do is go deep into the abyss, as it were, on the basis that the abyss, the deep ocean, is a place where familiar categories and concepts cannot simply be applied they have to be rethought and reconfigured. And that process of thinking about why we apply, why we extend (coughs) land-based categories to the deep ocean might actually help us reflect more carefully on the fundamentals of the international legal order and what needs to be done to change these fundamentals. So in sum, what I try to produce is quite simply a conjoint narrative on the one hand of the legal production of the ocean and on the other hand of the oceanic production of international law. And today, I'd like to tease out some elements of this narrative by way of a focus on the seabed. So what I'm going to do now is tell you essentially three short stories that will, I hope, add up to two points. The first point is, I don't think a very controversial one, it is that the law's development has been such as to cater to the ocean's uh, economic exploitation, a standard political economy point. The second point is where, Very Many other critical international lawyers who do like to focus on the (coughs) political economy of international law actually part company from me because this is a contextualist point. The argument I make is that the outcome, the design of the law did not owe purely to strategic economic calculations. Key interventions that uh, shaped the, the law of the sea came from many other considerations, many of which were not even directly concerned first and foremost with the ocean. Many interests, interests in lots of other things, (coughs) drove the development of the law, and it's important to recognize that you can reach a certain political economy without, through the sum of multiple interventions, not all of which are aimed at the outcome that is sort of being achieved. And this, I'm going to come back to this and talk about this at the end, because I find this quite liberating. This tells us that there were many possibilities in the terms that the law could have taken. It didn't take those turns then, but perhaps we might be able to recoup some of those possibilities now as we think about a more ecologically grounded law for the ocean. Okay, so moving on to my short stories. The short stories are first, the first one will be a brief history of the seabed and its uses. The the second short story will be the shape that the law has given to the seabed and on what basis. And finally, the third short story will try to introduce some of my arguments about why we got where we got. What were the interventions? What were the confluence of factors that shaped the outcome? Uh, and correspondingly came to shape how the law developed the way it did. So let's start with short story one, a brief history of the seabed. And the seabed genuinely does have quite a brief history, especially in terms of human comprehension of it. Because even well into the 19th century, it was not perfectly understood that the ocean had a floor or rather, as you see from the quote on the slide here, the floor was thought by many to be more metaphysical than physical, water that grew more and more solid, providing floors (coughs) on which objects would gather according to their material and moral rate. It was in 1854 that the first depth map of the ocean came to be produced by a U.S. naval officer called Matthew Fontaine Murray. This was... A fairly inaccurate map. Maury had very little data to go on. The map was made, was built out of his projections on the basis of, uh, I think, an available 200 readings of the ocean depths. And so, what we have here is the product of one man's imagination. And yet, this had, it was a very influential map, not least because it inspired another man, Cyrus Westfield, to try and lay a telegraph cable across the Atlantic. And so. Westfield began his operations in the 1850s uh, and after many setbacks, including the American Civil War, he succeeded in the 1860s. Undersea cables, therefore, became the first significant use of the ocean floor and indeed already the first use that produced significant uh, ecological disaster, not for the ocean itself but for other parts of the world in Asia, from where the material that was used to insulate these uh, underwater cables was sourced. And I'm happy to talk about this in greater detail in Q&A if anybody is interested. Telegraph cables then came to be joined in time by telephone cables and then other media cables including the internet and of course to crisscross not just the Atlantic but also all of the other oceans. Now, the first cables, one of the advantages, apart from improving communications, of course, one of the other, advi- one of the other uh, beneficent impacts of these cables was that they produced a new understanding <coughs> of what was present in the deep oceans. Until the work of, of, on, in laying and, and, uh, and sort of repairing these cables began, it was thought that the deep ocean was devoid of life. But once these cables had to be raised and lowered, it, was, it became to be noticed that actually there were lots of different minuscule life forms that were clinging on to these cables. And this expedited an interest in studying the, the deep ocean in greater detail. So the late 19th century saw the launch of several oceanic expeditions. The most famous of these was the Challenger expedition, which was uh, uh, launched by the Roy- funded by the Royal Society of London. The Challenger sailed from 1872 to 1876, and it brought back a wealth of information about the ocean floor, samples of marine flora and fauna, but also readings of, the, uh, of, the, of ocean depths. And the Challenger expedition helped <coughs> to produce the first uniform understanding of what the ocean floor across the world might look like. Um, it helped us see that in most places, the floor of the ocean follows a certain a certain regular sort of structure for the for initial the initial bit I mean just <coughs> outward from the coasts you have a gently declining slope this is known as the continental shelf at some point the shelf then breaks off and begins to decline more steeply towards the ocean this is known as the continental slope um, you then have another bit of uh, again gentle decline the continental uh, um, uh, the continental base, and then the whole th- and then you have the deep ocean floor after that. So this was possible to, this this structure was possible to map on the basis of the readings that were obtained from the Challenger expedition. And over the next half century, as the, the sort of geology of the ocean floor began to be better understood, interests began to coalesce around the different uses of this ocean floor. So firstly, interests began to emerge with relation to the continental shelf. It was already known to provide the the ground for oysters and pearls. In the early 20th century then, geologists also discovered the presence of oil on the continental shelf, first off the US East Coast and then elsewhere. And with rapidly improving technology, oil exploitation began to move further and further outward into deeper and deeper waters. So oil then became the second (coughs) major use of the seabed. By the 1960s, companies were also drilling the continental shelf for other minerals. So diamonds were being drilled for off Namibia, tin of Thailand, zirconium of Australia, and gold of Alaska. And so hard minerals became a third major use of the seabed so far of the shallow seabed. Meanwhile, the deep seabed was also coming into focus. Already, it had been used for <coughs> laying cables. But other events, like the sinking of the Titanic in 1912, and then the two world wars led to an interest in improving depth measuring and depth sounding technologies so that, you knew, so that navigators would know what the obstacles were <coughs> and where, how to detect hidden submarines. After World War II in particular, a lot of money poured into oceanography and more and more adventurous projects came to be undertaken. For example, in the 1940s, scientists in New York at the Lamont Observatory began a project of mapping the entire seafloor. Uh, the team, Marie Tharp and Bruce Heazen, produced physiogeographic maps. So these are quite different from the contour maps that Maury had produced. These maps were ported to show almost by way of, almost like a photograph, what the ocean floor would look like if all the water was removed. Now it's important to note that this was not actually a photograph. These maps were also projections from available data, but they were much more accurate than Maury's map and they really created a sense of the familiarity of the deep, with the deep ocean amongst uh, scientists and, later on, lawmakers as well. Uh, another ambitious proposal was to try to drill through the seabed down to the, the second layer of the Earth, the Earth's mantle, which had the knock-on effect of producing better drilling technology. So the 1960s saw the perfection of the deep sea drilling ship, <coughs> uh, And right on cue, the, the, it was also discovered that the deep sea also had mineral resources that could be exploited by way of uh, deep sea drilling. Now, in fact, uh, and these, this was, these mineral resources were in the form of these large potato-like objects called polymetallic nodules. Now, in fact, the, users, the fact that the deep ocean floor was littered with nodules had been known for a while. The Challenger expedition had also brought up samples. But back in the 1870s, there was nothing that could be done with this knowledge. There was no available technology for trying to recover these nodules on a large scale. In the 1960s, this seemed to have changed there was a sense that now there was available technology, but also there was increasing economic need as the contents of these nodules, which were manganese, copper, cobalt, iron, and nickel were all needed for industrial processes. And both the Cold War and decolonization had interrupted the assurance of supply to various economies. So Western economies were worried about not being able to source it from their former colonies or from uh, Eastern Europe. Similarly, countries of Eastern Europe provided that they would no longer be able to get it from any country that was allied with the the West. And so the the possibility that these could be recovered from the deep ocean was seen by everyone to be quite a satisfactory uh, solution to a growing need. So these nodules became a fourth potential use of the sea. But I'll come to why I say potential in, in a few moments. But these growing uses, both actual and projected, made clear that a new legal framework would be needed. Already claims were being made to extend continental shelves. so states were claiming broader and broader, uh, uh, trying to bring broader and broader areas of the ocean within national jurisdiction. but there were questions about how far these claims could go. And it was also clear that the traditional principle of the freedom of the high seas, which would work very well for navigation and fisheries, would not work for things like seabed mining. Because companies that wanted to to make investments into specific mining sites had to survey specific mining sites, build site-specific equipment, wanted legal security of tenure. And so some sort of concept was needed in international law by by which a state or an international organization could grant these companies with licenses that would assure them of the secure tenure over the sites that they would invest quite a lot of money in. And so began the process of trying to bring the seabed as a whole within defined regimes of national and international jurisdiction. And you can imagine the variety of interests that were involved here. I'm just going to move on from here. This was a slide that was about interests interests in also living in the ocean. But you can imagine the variety of other interests that were involved here, just with relation to the scope of jurisdiction over the continental shelf. Uh, States that had short or no coastlines wanted most of the ocean to be placed under international arrangement. States with long coastlines, uh, you can imagine, wanted both exclusive fishing rights and uh, national jurisdiction over very large areas of the continental shelf. Within states, there were lots of divisions of opinion. So just in the United States, the U.S. National Petroleum Council wanted the U.S. to extend jurisdiction over as large a portion of the ocean territory as it could, so that, uh, so as to bring all of the possible oil-bearing areas within U.S. jurisdiction. But the U.S. defense interests were strongly opposed to this. They were worried that if the U.S. extended national jurisdiction over very large stretches of the ocean, other countries would do the same, and this would make navigation impossible, but it would also make operating close to the shores of other states really difficult. So the CIA, in fact, produced a scare map in the 1970s to show what the ocean would look like if everyone extended national jurisdiction up to the midpoint of the ocean. Essentially, they said the whole ocean would be get divided up into national lakes and this would make navigation absolutely impossible. Corporations for their part wanted legal certainty, but wanted very few costs developing states wanted redistribution so they uh, so the G77 but also NGOs that were sympathetic to the developing states were arguing that actually corporations in return for being able to operate in the oceans should share quite a large portion of the profits with uh, countries with developing countries So the law of the sea that emerged in the period between 1945 and 1982 emerged from a contest between all these various interests. It sought to reconcile all these multiple interests, interests of corporations, interests of developing states, interests of states with long coastlines, interests of states with no coastlines or very short coastlines, and so forth. Uh, And in reconciling these interests, it ended up carving the ocean, carving up the ocean in very interesting ways. So let me tell you more about how it carved up the ocean. And this is the subject of my second short story, how the law constructs the seabed. So I'm going to tell you that the law does three things. Firstly, it divides up the seabed into national and international regimes. Secondly, it divides up the seabed into land and water regimes, and into living and non-living resource regimes. So let's start with the very first one. Now... The law divides the seabed into zones of national and international jurisdiction. National jurisdiction is extended over an area that is legally described as, but uh, physically or geologically need not be the continental shelf. In this area, coastal states have exclusive right to exploit seabed resources. The rest of the seabed constitutes the international area that is administered by an international agency. And here the rules require, in some vague sense, that is still being worked out, that the resources that are recovered must be recovered for the benefit of all mankind, which is to say that all states must be able to share in the profits that are derived from these resources. So the international agency that has been set up is empowered to collect a portion of the revenue derived from seabed mining for the distribution. Now, one key question here is how was the line between the area that came within national jurisdiction and the area that was left within international jurisdiction? How was this line drawn? On what basis? Um, until the 1940s, before these claims began to be made, the whole ocean was governed by the principle of freedom. I've told you that after the 1940s, the discovery of oil made states anxious to assert national jurisdiction over areas of the continental shelf, but they had to then argue that these areas would be then removed from, the op- from within the operation of the principle of the high seas, which had been a traditional well-established principle. So in order to make their argument persuasive, they argued essentially that the enclosure of the ocean within national jurisdiction was justified because the shelf, unlike other parts of the sea, was a natural prolongation of land territory. The coastal state, in claiming jurisdiction over the continental shelf, was simply reclaiming its own submerged territory. It wasn't enclosing the ocean as such. (coughs) This idea of the shelf as the natural prolongation of uh, the territory of coastal states has remained part of the imaginary of the seabed and remains part of how the position is articulated in the law so you see uh, that the, in the icj justifying or discussing the length of the continental shelf in terms of the idea of the natural prolongation of the coastal ter- of of, land, of the land territory of a coastal state and similarly the 1982 un convention on the law of the sea also giving expression to the same idea that the continental shelf is a prolongation of coastal state territory now of course, there is a geological truth to the idea that the continental shelf extends outward from the coasts of a state. You can start if you begin walking into the ocean. At some, you will be walki- at some point if you are able to hold your breath long enough. You will be walking on bits that are the continental shelf. But the law, although it cites the geological basis, does not really rely on geological evidence for delimiting the shelf. The law has already rejected. Um, the natural dividing line between the continental shelf and the continental slope. This was not amenable to oil interests because massive oil uh, uh, deposits lay beyond the natural continental shelf. The the law also rejects, where inconvenient, another natural dividing line between the continental margin and the deep ocean floor. This which are composed differently. So you can argue that there is there is there are there are two geological parts to the seafloor. The deep sea bed is composed differently from the continental shelf, but in the law, in many places, the way that jurisdiction is extended over the seafloor, the deep ocean is also brought within. What is geologically the deep ocean is also brought within the definition of the continental shelf. This is true for at least thirty-four states where the continental margin stops well before the 200 miles that are now uh, considered continental uh, to be legally the continental shelf. And this was, again, because this was the the physical division. The geological basis was not acceptable to states (coughs) that had very narrow continental margins. They thought it was unfair that some states, like the United States, would get very large stretches of the ocean within the national jurisdiction, whereas they, with with being shelf-locked, or having very narrow uh, continental margins, would not get nearly as much. So geology was cited but not followed, but then geology was brought back in through the back door on the basis that states that had very, very broad continental margins indeed, beyond the 200 miles that was allocated to every every state. Those states could then provide geological evidence and claim an even broader stretch of the ocean as falling within the national jurisdiction. So what we have is therefore the assertion of a natural basis for the division of the ocean floor but the natural boundaries are selectively followed. The legal map of the ocean smooths out a discontinuous, fairly featureful, uh, very uh, minutely differentiated part of the ocean into essentially a smooth prolongation of, of natural land territory. The second distinction that the law makes is even more interesting. This is that the law separates the seabed and sea waters, placing them under separate regimes. So, for example, separate regimes govern. Um, the, the deep seabed and the high seas, and separate regimes again govern the continental shelf and the waters above the continental shelf, which may be either the high seas or the exclusive economic zone of states if uh, proclaimed as such. The purpose uh, of this division was to reconcile the uses that rely on the principle of freedom, uh, such as navigation, with those that, requ- that rely on the exclusivity of legal tenure, like mining for oil or minerals. And again, the division was presented as being a natural one, as responding essentially to physical facts about the sea. Uh, water and land were different mediums, as lawyers in the 1940s and 50s were wont were to write in their articles as if announcing a great discovery. Uh, they, or some lawyers even tried to work up a further legal fiction, suggesting that in a way we could think of there, there being an, a really thin, almost invisible layer of lami- uh, lamination, a membrane, that separated, the continent, that separated the sea floor from the waters above so that you could remove things from the sea floor, without really affecting anything uh, in the waters above. Um, so this sort of fiction obviously proved hard to, mem- to maintain. Nobody could find any you know, visible evidence of this kind of membrane. Uh, and equally hard to avoid were questions of where the boundary really lay between the two. How do we decide what is land and wh- where, where the land ends and, and where water begins. How do we decide what are the resources that lie on the land, on the seafloor, versus things that lie in the water? The law had to settle these questions by a process of essentially jurisdictional allocation, and it tried, and, but it did so in ways that were extremely incoherent. So let me try to illustrate these, first by reference to the continental shelf, And I'll then come to the deep seabed, where I would suggest the incoherence and how the law has allocated jurisdiction is even more pronounced. On the continental shelf, oil and all minerals are placed within the seabed regime. So are all sedentary living species, which are defined as being immobile or unable to move except in constant contact with the seafloor. Thus, corals, sponges, clams are all allocated to the seabed, even though, again, we might argue that these live in the water as much as they do on the bed. And many of these, in fact, flourish best in shallow water, even breaking the surface, as corals do. Crustaceans, prawns, crabs, shrimp, lobsters, are also allocated to the seabed, although these, in fact, swim. So there's a fiction that these are sedentary species. On the other hand, bottom-dwelling fish, like the one the crocodile fish you see there, uh, that use the seabed as breeding ground, that spend most part the, the largest part of their life on the seabed are uh, placed within regimes that pertain to the ocean, sea waters. Uh, and similarly, fish that other f- and, and so it's so is true of these other fish there that, that uses again the seafloor as its floor. <coughs> so these allocations <coughs> were necessary at the time that they were made, but they made very little sense of the ecology within which these species best flourished. And they were very hard to explain. And are still very hard to explain by the yardstick of any natural division. In the deep sea bed, an even more stark distinction is at work. This is a distinction between living and non living occupants of the seabed. All of these are, of course, configured as resources, but all non living living resources, like minerals, are placed (coughs) in the regime of the deep sea bed, while all living resources ostensibly fall within the regime of the high seas. That is to say, they're available to be fished and used on the principle of the freedom of the seas. Now, this avoids the sedentary, non-sedentary distinction. It avoids imposing certain physical characteristics on on living species, but it produces many other problems. Consider, for example, this picture. What you're looking at here is a hydrothermal vent site. So hydrothermal vents are chimneys that Formed at sites of tectonic activity where sort of smoke gushes out, uh, mineral rich smoke gushes out from uh, rents in the earth, in the seabed floor, and then solidifies. And these hydrothermal sites are actually intensely biologically and mineralogically rich sites. So they thrive with life, all sorts of curious life forms are born here. In particular, they are sites where uh, microbial life flourishes. And this is microbial life that feeds off the gases that hydrothermal vents release. So they, the hydrothermal vents are fascinating because they're the starting point of what is known as the dark food chain, chemosynthetic bacteria that are not like us. So we are all creatures that rely on photosynthesis. That's the basis of our food chain. This is a food chain that begins with sulfur and with other gases that are produced from the deep sea floor. And then that becomes the starting point for entire, uh, a whole community of other organisms that feed on these micro- uh, microbes. Again, it's very hard to, to make sense of how you can distinguish the elements of uh, the Earth that are part of the regime of the seabed. So how do we decide how can, I mean it's, you can under the law, the mineral elements of these hydrothermal vent sites are part of the regime of the seabed, but the biological elements, the microbes and everything that feeds off these microbes are part of the regime of the, of the high seas but the distinction begins to break down when you realize how embedded the, the, the two are in each other. So again, these are, this is a, there is a symbiotic relationship that is again ignored in the law which creates an artificial jurisdictional separation between the two. So these are some of the ways in which the law makes invisible the very nested ecosystems of the ocean by injuridically constructing it as separable by national and international jurisdiction, by land and water mediums, by living and non-living resources and fixed and mobile forms of life. The effect of this is to reduce a rich nested ecosystem like the one that you see in the picture in front of you on the left of the slide into essentially uh, a picture where all of these features are removed and what we have is an image of a site that is ready for seabed mining. We only see then the mineral resources and fail to acknowledge the embeddedness of these mineral resources in a very uh, rich ecology. So I argue that these divisions that were produced over the course of between 1945 and 1982 in various uh, lawmaking, through various lawmaking efforts, facilitated extractive activity. They removed social and ecological barriers to seabed mining, and obviously they served the interests, therefore, of some corporations and some states, but to the greater detriment of the ocean. And this orientation of the law and its (coughs) constitutive effects must be recognized, and this is what I argue needs to be unmade now. But having said this, I now want to offer some complicating annotations, which is by way of my third short story. For recognizing the law's role in facilitating extractive activity should not lead us to think that the economic activity itself or the need for it were givens, and the law just a response to these needs that were outside of the law. I argue, firstly, the law also constructed the conditions in which these economic activities had value. And secondly, that the law itself emerged from a variety of considerations and interests, not all of which were really even focused on trying to extract value from the ocean. So the history of why we have the law we have today is a messy one. And that mess is the subject of my, short st- of my third short story and of the research that I'm trying to do <coughs> at the present. So I'm going to make my third short story very short indeed for now. But this is, as I said, I, I am in the process of publishing uh, this argument. So you can read it in a few months. I won't go into how the economic model for the continental shelf for oil extraction was reified. Just to note that the conditions at the time in the 30s and the 40s about whether oil mining should be carried out, under what conditions, uh, under whose uh, legal ownership, all of these were fairly fluid. Uh, And it was lawyers, to a large extent, that helped to make the choices by which we came to the continental uh, shelf regime that we have today. What drove these lawyers in the 1940s and 50s who participated in bringing the Shelf under national jurisdiction was not so much a preoccupation with petrol or oil, although there was that, many of the, these lawyers were employed by BP and Shell and other oil companies, but interestingly and very vocally also a professional anxiety about the very fate of international law if uh, international law was not shown to be a viable channel for economic growth and development. So the lawyers came very quickly to the conclusion that post-war conditions demanded showing that international law was adaptable to the world's needs. International law was flexible, and therefore international law was also relevant to transactions. The fear was that if international law was seen as highly formal as it has had been seen in the interwar years, it would no longer be the main medium through which communications would happen. We would have this switch towards some some other language of of international transactions and international law would therefore not be able to produce the sort of gently civilizing effects that these laws associated with it. So it was a sort of liberal concern with preserving international law as the main currency of international exchange that helped generate an account uh, by which the traditional principle of the high seas had to be replaced in favor of extending national jurisdictions over the continental shelf. I'd like to say a little bit more about the deep ocean because here the fantasy of it, was as well as its economics were legally constructed uh but we have to think about what really triggered the world's interest in deep sea bed minerals yes of course there was the discovery of polymetallic nodules and yes there was a context briefly in the 60s where it seemed that the world's resource needs were growing and that these minerals would be need- would need would be needed to be sourced from the sea but if you look at what's happening today, seabed c- mining remains an activity for the future. We've never actually, the the, industri- the idea of seabed c- mining has been around for a very long time. The law on seabed c- mining has been around for a very long time. Seabed c- mining itself has not yet taken off. It took, even in the 60s, an individual feat of imagination to make the links between the world's needs, the ocean's resource potential, and the possibility of tapping the ocean for inclusive economic growth by way of regulation. And these links were made by Ambassador Arvid Pardo of Malta in a a long speech to the UN General Assembly. It's a wonderful speech, it's very worth reading. He spoke for three and a half hours continuously. Uh, And in this speech, he not only presented a very exaggerated account of ocean riches, and the ease by which they could be recovered, but also sold a combination of hope and fear to the assembled delegates. So he said, on the one hand, seabed minerals could feed accelerated economic growth. They could make up for shortages on land. They could facilitate redistribution. They could substitute for development aid that the developed world was at the moment was then giving to the developing world. Uh, And they could even perhaps provide the starting point for a new way of interacting with the ocean that would later facilitate human habitation of the ocean. So all of these were potential benefits of seabed mining. On the other hand, unless seabed mining was regulated by international law, Individual states would rush to claim, would rush to colonize, he said, uh, the seabed to get exclusive benefit of these minerals. And this, of course, fell, I mean, you can, this was the 1960s, right? This was the era of decolonization. Pardo spoke in the register of a new scramble for the seabed that would rival or even completely outpace the scramble for Africa in the previous century. There w- and he said that this scramble was, in fact, as far as he could see, already underway. This, the, the, these. This sort of recounting of all the possible dangers if the law did not step in to prevent the the colonization of the seabed spurred the assembled delegates to activity. Uh, He said the UN General Assembly should immediately get cracking on a treaty uh, that would set up an international agency to regulate mining. Now, Pardo's intervention was influential for many reasons. But what is often overlooked is that it did not really originate in any real interest in or understanding of, this, uh, of the ocean. Pardo talks about, in, in a piece that he wrote later in life, he talks about how he didn't even know very much about seabed mining or about seabed minerals until a few months before he made a speech. He discovered the issue was, was ripe in the course of a cocktail party conversation. The import, but he chose to take it up as something he would talk about for the rest of his life for the simple reason that he had been appointed, this, that he thought as a strategic way of achieving what he had been appointed to do. So Pardo had been hired by Malta to be its first ever international diplomat. Malta became independent in 1964. They recruited Pardo to become their main diplomat in the United States and Europe. They gave him, uh, they told him that his job was to try to put Malta on the map to make it really a central voice in foreign, poli- in, in foreign policy matters. But they were only able to give him a small office, a staff of three, and duties to engage with uh, major countries, both in Europe and America and the UN. And so he had a very large mandate, very few resources, and he thought the the best thing for him to do would be to come to sort of pick up on some sort of big ticket issue that would then become associated with a Maltese intervention. He tried many issues. Uh, He tried arms control, that didn't go anywhere. He talked about UN reform. That didn't go anywhere. And finally he stumbled on the seabed and this became, this came to be seen as more promising. I could talk to you about, I'm happy to answer more questions about why Pardo was such a significant figure in himself. This had very little to do actually with his being the Maltese ambassador and very much to do with the fact that before that he had been a UN civil servant for 20 years. He had been a senior figure in the department of trusteeship. He had been a significant figure in the UNDP. or or the element of it that was then the UN Extended Technical Assistance Program. So he was quite a respected figure and a very known figure, especially amongst developing states. Now, Pardo's intervention was successful for many reasons. It was rhetorically powerful, but it also benefited from favourable conditions for its reception. As initially sceptical developing states were brought around to the view that the seabed could be an important battleground for their movement for a new international economic order. Uh, That is to say for altered legal and political conditions uh, that would foster substantive equality and distributive justice between developed and developing states. Seabed minerals, this deep seabed had had no law specifically associated with it. So it was new terrain and it had provided both (coughs) economic promise and the possibility of equitable lawmaking. So, from 1968 to 1982, developing states who were gradually convinced to adopt the seabed issue as a central plank of their movement for a new international economic order came to participate with great fervor and enthusiasm in the drafting of the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea, which consolidated all of the divisions that I've described earlier. The negotiations of the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea were protracted, they were costly. They took place in a context where the faith in the possibility of seabed mining was beginning to erode. So already, even by 1973, which marked the inauguration of the third UN Conference of the Law of the Sea, there was some skepticism about what is about the reality of seabed mining. It would be too expensive, not enough technology, and it was not clear that, actually, it would produce much economic benefit, because you would spend a lot of money, and then one mining site would, might be enough to produce all the minerals that would be needed, bringing down, actually, uh, the, the mineral prices too much in the market. So many states that had initially championed seabed mining began to worry that their own export earnings would be very badly hit if seabed mining actually uh, was actually took off in a big way. But. The negotiations continued nevertheless, and this itself is a mystery. Why was there so much fervor around seabed negotiations? It is seabed negotiations that cause a delay in the adoption of the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. It is the seabed regime that is at the heart of why the US still refuses to sign the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. So why was there so much interest in the deep seabed? And this again has multiple reasons. The economic interests were a very, very small part of the story. Ideological interests, the fact that this became the main battleground for the possibility of uh, of the the main testing ground for the possibility of a new international economic order was one, but there were other factors. Amongst them, Cold War misinformation. So a lot of the there was a lot of asymmetry in how the information around the economic possibilities of seabed mining was circulating and was not circulating. I'd be very happy to talk about some of the episodes that contributed to this misinformation. Also. It's worth exploring how the seabed issue might have become a dodge. It might have become the thing that developing countries were also encouraged to focus on, so that they would, concede to, 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 they would be willing to make concessions in other areas, trade concessions, commodity agreement concessions, and so forth. It's worth thinking about how the very project of the new international economic order might have been distorted by this focus on seabed negotiations. So the point that I'm trying to make, and I obviously make this, I pursue this in much greater detail elsewhere, is that the creation of an extractive regime for seabed mining was shaped by many, many factors, most of which, or many of which, were not themselves really oriented towards the sea, towards uh, achieving a seabed regime in the first place. They were, put, they were engaging in the in the construction of a seabed regime out of a plethora of other kinds of interests. So what I've tried to do is through these three stories is to problematize what we take to be givens about the ocean its physical divisions its economic uses and to show that these were not only not givens but they were constructed and constructed through the law but the law itself was also contingent on a variety of factors the law was contingent on amongst other things anxieties about the future of the discipline of international law parochial concerns to put one's own home state on the map pardos concern uh, ideologies of technology-led development, visions of economic justice, uh, negotiation strategy, uh, strategic thinking about how the new international economic order movement could be focused around issues that mattered a little less in order to achieve bargains on issues that mattered more, and so forth. And all of these factors have shaped the fate of the oceans as we have uh, that we have today. And understanding this, I think, is not only necessary but also a useful first step towards then unsettling the very imaginary that today constrains the work that needs to be done in order to create a new ecologically grounded law of the sea the barriers to this the creation of this law are many you see already in something like the un the, the outcome document of the un ocean conference the dynamic that tends to be, that sort of tends to <coughs> come into place when changes in the law are discussed So on the one hand, you have the UN saying here that there needs to be a solution to the depletion of the ocean. The UN Ocean Conference was to a large extent focused on the growing threats to the ocean. And there was very clear agreement that something needed to be done. Urgent action was actually required. That was the first recognition. The move from that immediately, though, is to say, well, whatever the changes that have to be made, these these have to be made within the existing legal framework. changes to the law, the ways, the sort of, the creation of uh, measures of environmental protection cannot duplicate or undermine existing legal instruments, arrangements, processes, mechanisms, and so forth. The UN then goes on to say that actually, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea provides already a very detailed framework, and it is really a question of only better implementing this framework in order to achieve the outcomes that are sought. This is precisely where scientists depart company from from lawyers because the argument is that you cannot continue to keep using the ocean in the ways that the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea not only allows but also entrenches and still hope to save the ocean. What is needed is essentially a rethinking of what is it that international law entrenches today uh, and how that might be overturned. So scientists argue that what essentially the UN outcome document, the UN conference, uh, in institutions that have been set up to monitor seabed c- mining, what most of these are focusing towards are things like b- better managing, b- to create better conditions for seabed c- exploitation, managing mining of the seabed c- in more efficient ways that are more environmentally sensitive. That's a good step, but that's really not enough. What we need is essentially coming back to older questions questions <coughs> about whether we should mine the seabed c- at all, whether it's possible to think of, whether it's possible to reconcile an extractive imaginary. With an ecological imaginary, and if we have to replace the ecolo- extractive imaginary, to what extent does the law need to be unmade? Those are the questions that interest me, um, and I, you know, I, I stop here. But I welcome your thoughts on this project. Thank you.